0: Welcome to the East Memorial Student Podcast, your source for the biblical teaching of East Memorial Student Ministries. I'm your host, Matthew Ronsky, pastor of Students and Discipleship at East Memorial Baptist Church in Prattville, Alabama. Thank you, Jeremy and team. Well, it is great to be back with you all this week. For those that were on or at church this past Sunday, Chris and I were not. We were in North Carolina uh, again for a wedding. Hopefully, we won't have to go back to North Carolina for a little while. The the drive is intense. But uh, I I saw photos at least of the of uh, Bobby Joyner coming out as as Christ and being being lifted up. And so, if you were here this past Sunday, you probably know that this week is. Most, or we could say most Christian churches this week celebrate what is known as the Passion Week or the, the last week, the final week of Jesus' life. Uh, for example, so this past Sunday uh, was Palm Sunday or the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem on a donkey. This upcoming Friday is called Good Friday, which is the celebration of Jesus' or remembrance, I should say, of uh, Jesus' crucifixion. And then, of course, this upcoming Sunday is Easter where we remember the resurrection of Jesus. Well, in honor of the significance of this week and in anticipation of Good Friday, I felt it was best to take a one-week pause in our Biblical Ethics series, so just a one-week pause. We'll be back next week. And spend tonight teaching on the crucifixion of Christ. Now, if there's one thing that people know about Christian teaching, even non-Christians, it's that Jesus Christ died on the cross, crucifixion. And if you were to ask why, a lot of people, especially those that grew up in Sunday school or go to church even on a semi-basis, they would probably give a standard answer, well, he was crucified for the forgiveness of our sins. And that is certainly certainly true and a correct answer. However, a question that is far more difficult to answer is why was Jesus killed by crucifixion compared to another form of execution? And maybe you haven't even thought about that question. Maybe it's just one of those things where, well, that's just how he died, and you don't think much more about it, and that's understandable, but if we were to ask this question, why why was Jesus crucified compared to beheaded or strangled or any of the other forms of execution you could think of? Why crucifixion on a wooden cross? And I would imagine if you ask that, many people might think, well, that was just Rome's most severe form of punishment, they're, they're maybe even their fam- famous or more favorite form of execution for certain classes of people, and maybe that's the answer. What we are going to see tonight is that there is far more significance to the manner of death when it comes to the crucifixion than we often realize. In fact, we could say this, that crucifixion on a wooden cross, the type of death that Jesus died, is essential for our salvation, and this has been the case since the beginning even going back to the Old Testament, and so we're going to look at this tonight. But as we launch into tonight's message, the first place we're going to go is John chapter 3, 14 to 15. This is a pretty well-known passage. John chapter 3, 14 to 15, and whoever's up there, we got to we got to remove the uh, the media or the graphic behind it to make it easy to see. Brother Bima will help him out up there. Thank you so much. (laughs) All right. So, John chapter 3, verses 14 to 15, if you're there in your scripture. This is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, one of the teachers of Israel. And he says, starting in verse 14 As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. So here in this passage, Jesus is alluding to his eventual crucifixion being lifted up on the cross and he makes a comparison between him being lifted up and Moses be lifting up a, a serpent in the wilderness. And this refers to an event that, really an interesting event that took place in Numbers 21, chapter 21. And what this passage in John 3 indicates is that in order to begin understanding the significance of Jesus' crucifixion, we're going to have to go back even to Numbers 21 and look at this event where Moses lifted up a serpent and see, really start to unpack how this all correlates with each other. So let's go to Numbers 21 and we're going to spend some time in a few verses in this chapter, and we'll start in chat in verse 1. So Numbers 21, verse 1. And here in verse 1, we get some context of what's going on. So starting in verse 1, it says, "...when the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, then he fought against Israel and took some of them captive." So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. The Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. Then they utterly destroyed them in their cities. Thus the name of the place was called Hormah. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey the people spoke against God and Moses. So here, despite God answering their prayers, this is the cursed people of Canaan, very wicked people that live in the southern part of the land of Israel, and they're coming out to attack Israel in the wilderness. They have some success. Israel cries to God, prays to God, and God answers. God delivers them, answers their prayers. But only a few moments later, as they're continuing their journey in the wilderness, they become impatient and even speak against God and Moses and really cursing God and Moses. And keep in mind here, this is the same generation of Israelites that came out of Egypt in the Exodus. And if you are familiar with the history of that generation, starting in Exodus all the way to this point, then you will know that this is not the first time this generation is going to speak out against God. They've already shown a rebellious heart. But they do it again here, and what do they say this time? Well, let's look, continuing in verse 5. We stopped right after the people spoke against God and Moses. Here's what they say. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food." All right, so two things about this. One, we see that Israel is ungrateful to God for uh, delivering them from harsh slavery in Egypt. And also, number two, they express hatred of the manna which God gave them as food, calling it miserable food. And this is a reference to the manna. And this miserable food, this manna, or at least miserable in the eyes of the Israelites, is in, and I, it's identified in scripture elsewhere as the bread of angels. In other words, this is the food that the angels eat. And here God, to sustain them and keep them alive in the wilderness, is giving them this food. They don't have to farm for it. They don't have to work for it. It's just given to them. They just have to collect it up off the ground. And here they're complaining about it. They hate it. And they're calling it miserable food. So as a result of this insult to God, God is about to send a curse upon the people of Israel. And so continuing in verse six, we see what this curse is. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived." So several key observations to point out in this passage. One, and I could ask you, what kind of serpents does God send to bite the people of Israel? What are, what are your, are all, do all your translations say fiery? Mine says poisonous. poisonous, okay, okay. So in the Nazmi, it says fiery, and I would argue that that's probably the better translation Poisonous makes sense because the translators are thinking, well, they're biting the people, the people are dying, so obviously these are poisonous snakes. But in the original Hebrew, it is the word fiery. Now, trivia question. When you think of fiery serpents, does anything come to mind? Any connection come to mind with maybe a previous series that we did? Okay, here, dragon. Okay, here's here's another hint. This word for fiery is called, well, the Hebrew literally is seraphim. So does that ring a bell? The angels, that's right, the seraphim. In fact, the seraphim in the same word, these were the angels that Isaiah saw in his vision of God's throne in Isaiah 6. Seraphim, same word. And if you remember from our... Angels and Demons series. I had mentioned and even showed a few photos that in the ancient Near East, like Egypt and other places, you could find depictions of these seraphim as winged serpents, flying serpents, and they were considered throne guardians of the kings or the gods. This is what the seraphim were depicted as in the ancient Near East. And it is likely that Satan who appears as a serpent in Genesis 3 is a seraphim. In fact, the word for serpent here in Numbers 21 is the same word that describes the devil as a serpent in Genesis 3, the same exact word. So we see this connection then between really Satan or, the, or it'd be Satan's an angel if we remember that, these fiery serpents in Numbers 21, and here's the significance of that. The significance of this connection, and remember, a reader of this, somebody that's reading Numbers 21 and they know their Bible really well, they're going to see this connection. They're going to see the linguistic connection, the, the connection of the words, and they're going to think back to Genesis 3 and the devil, and they're going to remember that it was the serpent who was cursed for tempting Adam and Eve. Satan was cursed. In fact, if you look with me, well, you don't have to look. We'll have it on the screen. Stay in in, uh, uh, where you're at. In Genesis 3, verse 14, this is what God says to the devil. It says in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, that is tempt Adam and Eve, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go. And dust you will eat all the days of your life. Now, what this means, okay, the, 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 if we're going to land the plane in terms of this connection, what this means in Numbers 21 is that God is using a cursed object, this depiction of a fiery serpent. He is using this cursed object to serve as a curse upon his people. He's using a curse to serve upon a curse. And when Moses intercedes on behalf of the people and asks God for his, his deliverance, he doesn't remove the curse from all the people, meaning he doesn't immediately remove all the snakes, all the serpents, but he does provide a way for the Israelites to save their life. And the way that he provides, the life-saving antidote that God provides is to is for moses to make an image of this cursed object this fiery serpent and hang it on a banner to lift up in front of the people and all those who looked upon this cursed hanging object their life was saved now you might think okay based on what we've covered so far i still don't see the connection well that would be fair because we can't just go from here in Numbers 21 straight to the cross with Jesus Christ. There are more links in the chain, biblically, that help us see the significance of this more fully. And perhaps the most important link is found in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 to 23. So if you flip over to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 21, verses 22 to 23, we see another critical link in this chain that's leading us to the cross. So here in Deuteronomy 21, starting in verse 22, it says, and here, well, I'll just read it. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. So let me stop right there, okay? This in this law here that we're going to see, this is the condition. This is the situation that's being presented. So this situation is this. You have a man who has committed a sin worthy of death. Now, what is a sin worthy of death, right? We, th- we could think of a lot of sins in our mind that we would think of, well, yeah, there's a lot of death penalty, you know, death penalty worthy sins. But here, this is actually a little bit more than just an average sin. For example, and you don't see this in the English too well, This phrase, a sin worthy of death, is a unique phrase in the Old Testament that only occurs in this passage. This is the only place this occurs. And not only is this phrase unique, but this passage's location in the structure of the book of Deuteronomy indicates that the sin in mind here, this sin worthy of death, is a sin of the highest degree that is worthy of the highest punishment. It's a special class of sin. And the punishment that is in, associated with this kind of sin is to be hung on a tree. Now, here's where the translations can um, maybe don't make it as clear. This phrase, hung on a tree... In the Hebrew, the language of this punishment is associated with execution by impalement or piercing. It's not like being hung from a noose. It's impalement or piercing. And so in the ancient Near East, this was a punishment reserved for the highest crimes because it was considered one of the most brutal and humiliating forms of execution. So if you don't like graphic depictions, I'm not gonna be too graphic, but if you don't like them, cover your ears, okay? What was impalement? Impalement in the ancient Near East most often was they would take a criminal guilty of the highest crimes, they would strip them completely naked, and they would literally pierce them through with a wooden stake and then hang them up in the air for them to die. And that could take days depending on where they were pierced through, but that was impalement. And it didn't always have to be a wooden stake. Sometimes it could be they were they were nailed to a, a wooden post or a wooden wall, but but typically they would take these wooden stakes and impale people um, to, to die a slow and agonizing death. And this was humiliating for a number of reasons. One, you're completely exposed and naked. Everyone can see this. You're dying a very slow death, in fact, slow, so slow that in in this time, it would be possible for these these people to actually see the vultures gathering around them, getting ready, the animals and the vultures gathering around, getting ready to eventually eat them eventually, right? Okay. Um, So it's very, very, very humiliating, a very painful form of death. And this type of death was reserved for the highest and most serious of sins, Usually sins of high treason, high treason against the king or in in their conception, the gods. And even here in scripture, where we worship the true God, he is assuming and he's implying, God is, that is, that, that the highest sin will be punished in this way. Now, the next verse in verse 23 gives a command associated with this. So we we had the situation presented. Now we have the command. So here in verse 23, it says, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile the land or your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So here's where... The biblical command differs from the practice of the surrounding world. Unlike in Egypt or Syria or Babylonian or, you know, Babylonia, the God is commanding you are to bury this person as soon as they die. You don't leave them hanging for multiple days or for them to decompose. You bury them as soon as they they die. And the reason is given. The one who is hanging on the tree is cursed by God. In other words, the person that's hanging is seen in God's eyes as cursed. And because this person is cursed, God, want, God is commanding them to bury him to essentially remove the curse from the land. In other words, if you, let him, if you keep him up there hanging, then that's going to cause curse to spread. It won't stop the spread of the curse. So this cursed man that's hanging on a tree must be buried in order to remove curse. The curse. And now you remember in Numbers 21 with the fiery serpent, you had a cursed object, the fiery serpent being lifted up to remove the effects of God's curse. Well, here it's a very similar thing. Cursed object, in this case, a man, a cursed man, being hung up on a tree, lifted up on a tree through impalement or piercing, and then buried to remove the curse from the land. And when you look at Scripture and when you look at how this command is applied or how it's alluded to in Scripture, what we see, and this is what we'll we'll look at one example, even though there's many, that this death by impalement or, or piercing, this type of death that's, that we just went through, is applied to leaders, primarily leaders, who bring God's curse upon their people and whose death in this way removes God's curse from their people. Or to say it in another way, when the leader of a cursed people dies in this way, it removes God's curse from that people. So there are many examples that we could talk about. For example, there's Absalom, King David's son, that rebels against him, commits high treason. Uh, He has long, luscious hair that gets caught in a tree. And then one of David's generals comes and, and pierces him through with the spear. Right, So that's, that's an example of this punishment. You have uh, the, the seven sons of King Saul that are hung up, will really pierce to the wall in front of the Lord at, at Gibeon for, violating the, for Saul's violation of the Gibeonite covenant. That's another example. But the one example we're going to look at is actually in Numbers 25. So go back to Numbers, Numbers 25. And this is one very clear example of this. And we're going to spend some time looking at the first nine verses of Numbers 25. And here, verse 1 gives us some context. It says, While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. This was a foreign nation at the time. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. That is, the gods of Moab. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor and the Lord was angry against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. What we don't see here, but we see a few verses down is that this fierce anger was expressed through a plague that came upon the people that would eventually kill 24,000 of the Israelites. So a plague has been brought upon the people for this sin. And here God is telling them, take all the leaders of the people and execute them. Now this word for execute is, guess what it refers to? Impalement, piercing. It's it's, it's It's a similar word that refers to that. So God is commanding Moses, take all the leaders and pierce them or impale them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord, which in this case is a plague, may turn away from Israel. So, continuing in verse 5, so Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then behold, so as this is all taking place, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel, why they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So stopping here for a minute, one of these sons, this is actually a leader from the tribe of Simeon, if you look down later on in the passage. And here, if you can envision this, Moses All his leaders, the people, they're at the tabernacle, the tent of meeting in front of it. They're crying, they're weeping because God has brought a plague upon them that is killing thousands of their people, probably including some children, wives, very close family members. And while they are weeping and crying about this, a leader of the sons of Israel right in front of all of them brings one of these Moabite women into the tent of his family to have relations with her. That's what's implied here. Right in front of everybody. This is very blatant, very just in your face, I'm gonna do what I want, I don't care. So what happens? There's a man named Phineas The son of Eleazar. This would be a great boy's name, by the way, Phineas, because this guy's this guy's a hero. So Phineas, here's what happens. Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it. He saw this man do this. He arose from the midst of the congregation. And took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through the body. In other words, he sees them go into the tent to do what they're gonna do. He takes the spear, and as they're doing what they were going to do, and as he is on top of her, he takes that spear and makes a shish kebab of both people. It's, it's brutal. So what happens? So the plague of the sons of Israel was checked. In other words, it was stopped. Once Phineas, son of Eleazar, did this, then the plague, of his, the plague that was brought upon Israel that ended up killing 24,000, it was stopped, and the curse was removed. And what we see here, this is a good example that when a cursed leader, in this case, this son of Israel, this this member of the tribe of Simeon, when he is pierced through in this way, the justice of God is satisfied and the curse is removed. So now coming to Jesus Christ and the crucifixion. Well, throughout the Old Testament, there are prophecies of a future Messiah a future leader of God's people who will be a king of God's people would come and he would bring in God's blessing upon his people and upon the entire world. However, Old Testament prophecies are also clear that this future Messiah would first have to remove God's curse upon his people and upon the world. And as we've seen, there's only one way for a curse like this to be removed. For example, look at Isaiah 53 verses one to six. We'll see an example of one of these prophecies. Isaiah 53 verses one to six. It says, "'Who has believed our message "'and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? "'For he grew up before him like a tender shoot "'and like a root out of parched ground.'" He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God or accursed of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. And taking this passage, and the prophecies like it, and we read from Psalm 22, Brother Bima read from Psalm 22 uh, earlier, and that psalm describes the crucifixion of the Messiah as well, and then Zechariah 12 also mentions it, but especially here in Isaiah 53, this prophecy is what establishes the basis of Christ's crucifixion. And it's what leads, for example, the Apostle Paul to say this. Let me read from you in Galatians 3, verses 13 to 14. You don't have to turn there. But here's what Paul says about this. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He redeemed us from the curse, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So as we see from these two passages, both from the old and the new, Jesus Christ, who is the promised Messiah, who would be king of a new people, the leader of God's people, he took away God's curse upon those people By becoming a cursed man, a cursed object, hanging on a tree. And in his case, the tree was a wooden cross. And what we see and and, and what we've demonstrated through all of these passages we've covered is that there was no other way. For high treason curse to be removed, a leader of the people had to be pierced and impaled on behalf of his people. That is the prescription. That is the antidote that God has given. However, unlike other human leaders, especially the one we just read about uh, that Phineas killed, unlike other human leaders before him, Jesus was not guilty of any sin himself. He was not the leader of sin. He was fully God and perfectly righteous. And what's significant about Jesus and what is so remarkable is that even though he was not guilty of any sin, which meant that he didn't have to die, he didn't need to die, he didn't need to die for himself, he didn't commit any sin worthy of death, but in order to remove the curse from the people that he would lead and the people that, over whom he would become king, he chose to suffer this kind of death. He chose to suffer the death on the cross, in order to remove the curse of sin from his people. And, and so as we conclude this tonight, okay, well, how does this then apply to me and to you? Well, I don't want to assume that, that it's, it's known by everybody, so let me just kind of go through it. And, and here's the first thing. Even if you don't feel it personally, and granted, you maybe you know you haven't committed some of the sins that you do find in the Old Testament, like the ones that that we have read about, the truth is that all people, including you, including me, everybody is born under a divine curse. So what do I mean by that? Well, Adam, the first man and our first ancestor, he's the ancestor of us all. We are all related in that sense. He sinned against God's command to him and brought a curse upon the world and upon all of humanity, as our first leader, as our first human father in that sense. And so as a result, the curse of spiritual death, which is really what the curse was ultimately, and we've talked about that in in previous lessons as well, this curse of spiritual death spread to all human beings who were born since, everybody, including you and I. And what this curse, this spiritual death produces is a sinful nature that makes our own sin inevitable. In other words, if you live long enough, you will commit a sin that you are guilty for. may not be guilty for Adam's sin, but you will eventually, if you live long enough, commit sin that you are guilty of. And some of you have most likely already reached that point. Many of us in this room have already reached that point in our life where we have no excuse, where the sin that we commit, we know that we're committing it, and therefore we're guilty, and we are under God's curse and his wrath. But the good news is that Jesus has provided a way of escape. Jesus has provided an antidote that can give us life and remove the curse from us. And just like the people who were commanded to look at the fiery serpent that was hanging on the banner, If we look to Jesus in faith and believe in him, then the curse is permanently and forever removed. We receive the Holy Spirit that that Jesus promised to send us, and through the Holy Spirit, we become united to Christ. We become part of his family. We become brothers and sisters of Christ. And as being united to Christ, we receive his righteousness. We share in his righteous nature. Now, some of us here, we've already received God's salvation. Therefore, we've already experienced the removal of God's wrath from us and we've already experienced the Holy Spirit coming to dwell within us and being unified with Christ. But some here, and it's just a reality, some have not. Some have not yet looked upon Jesus in faith. And so how I wanna end tonight is really a reminder to all of us, both those of us who have received God's salvation and those of us who have not, as a reminder, one thing that we need to realize is first, and this is important to to mention, that Jesus is no longer hanging on the tree. He's no longer hanging on the tree. He is no longer an object of, of a cursed object or a cursed man. Jesus has risen from the dead, which we'll celebrate this Easter, And he has ascended to the right hand of the Father in glory, in the same glory that he had before he became human. So he has risen, but we still can read and hear about his crucifixion in Scripture. We can still study his crucifixion and be reminded of his crucifixion. And in that sense, as we read this and as we hear this, in a sense, we are still able to look to Jesus through the scripture and believe upon him as if we were at the foot of the cross ourselves, watching him become a curse on our behalf. So that's what we should all do and all remind ourselves with. And when we die in this, in this present body or when Christ returns If you have looked upon Jesus and believed in him, then your salvation will become complete. You will be glorified. The curse of sin will be permanently removed from you to the point that you won't even be able to sin any longer. And you will live with God here on earth in Christ's kingdom for eternity. And you will live with all the others who have believed in Jesus in this same way. Let us pray over these things. Lord God, we are so thankful for your word and just the opportunity to see how just rich and, and deep your word really is, Lord, and how much truth and, that we can find within it, even something like the crucifixion and, and why that type of death was so important and so critical and that you, Lord, you determined it to be so, And yet your son Jesus Christ, he voluntarily and willingly died that type of death for us. And so Lord, I just pray that for those of us here or those of us listening to this message that have not yet believed in you, that have not yet looked upon your son in faith, that that would happen and that would take place, Lord, and that the curse, that your curse and your divine wrath would be removed permanently through that faith. Lord, I pray for these students. I pray for this evening that, that we'll have just a lot of fun and enjoy our time tonight. I pray for the rest of this week, including the storms that are, uh, that are, are coming, that you would just protect all of us in this community, Lord, and, and bless us in our uh, places of employment, our schools, and wherever we may be, Lord. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the East Memorial Student Podcast. For more information and updates about East Memorial Student Ministries, please visit our website at eastmemorial.org. You can also follow us on our Instagram page titled EMBC Student.